You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Thank you, musicians, for leading us in that. This Sunday, we finish a short six-week series uh, in the Proverbs entitled, In All Your Ways Acknowledge Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. And so we've been thinking over the last several weeks about how we acknowledge God in various areas of our life. We started off the first week looking at wise foundations. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts, living skillfully in God's world, starts by fearing and honoring and reverencing God. Then we looked at wise friends. Proverbs 13.20 says, Those who walk with the wise will be wise. Want to grow in wisdom? Put yourself in step with wise people, people who honor and fear God themselves. Then we looked at wise fruit. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Our words are incredibly powerful to produce good things in the lives of people. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Then we looked on Father's Day at wise family. Proverbs 20, verse 7, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. And last week we looked at wise future. 1921 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Well, this last Sunday, I want to consider wise fear. Wise fear. And I I confess that I've been looking forward to this one, perhaps because I need this one, and because I believe that all of us need to grow in wise fear so look at proverbs 29 proverbs 29 fear is is a universal emotion every country every people group all throughout history understand fear it's a universal emotion it is extraordinarily powerful some of us know ourselves to be fearful. It's a, it's a struggle we have, and, and we're well aware of it. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me uh, uh, recently uh, about uh, one of his childhood friends, and uh, she grew up in a difficult family environment, a diff- kind of emotionally difficult upbringing. And, and as she got older and, and became an adult and she started to date, when it started to get serious, she would say, hey, look, she'd say to the guy, marry me, marry my fears. Marry me, marry my fears. They're coming along for the ride. It's just part of who I am, and it's, we're going to have to deal with it. Right? Very aware of the role that fear played in her life. Some of us know it to be a big issue for us. Many of us, though, I suspect, don't think that fear is a really big deal for us. You know, we get scared sometimes, maybe a little anxious once in a while, but we, f- we figure we mostly have it under control. It's not a big thing us. But I think Proverbs 29 here is going to challenge that evaluation. I think it's going to expose fear in us 
in places we haven't seen. It's going to identify as fear things we haven't called fear in the past. Fear is an issue for virtually all of us in ways we've often barely begun to appreciate. And I think Proverbs 29 is going to give us some better categories and, and by God's grace, a way forward from those fears as well. I think that there are many of us here that, that the truth and wisdom of what we're going to see in this passage could be life-changing for us if we would believe and embrace it. I think it's that powerful. So look at Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25. This then is God's word. Just one verse. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Father, I pray you'd help us now, that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we look to your word that was inspired by your spirit. I pray that same spirit would speak and impress on us the truth of what it says, that we would understand it and believe it and embrace it and ultimately obey it for your glory and our joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the fear of man? What is the fear of man? It could be actually being afraid of someone. We see them and we tremble and we get scared and we want to run in the other direction. That happens, of course, but I don't think that's mostly what's in mind here. It includes things like holding someone in awe. It includes being controlled or mastered by people. Worshipping people, looking for them to provide meaning and significance to your life. Uh, putting your trust, uh, placing your hope on people and what they might do for you. Needing people. We might summarize it this way. When we fear man, we replace God with people. Rather than holding God in awe, we hold people in awe. Rather than being controlled and mastered by God, we are controlled and mastered by people. Rather than worshiping God, we, we start to worship people. With, rather than trusting and putting our hope in God, we trust and put our hope in people. Rather than needing God, as we most certainly do, we, we perceive ourselves to need people. And the problem is, it's almost universal. We almost all struggle with this. Think about the many different ways this can play out, the, the many different ways we talk about it. When I was a teenager, what everyone was talking about with teens was peer pressure. I don't know if they still talk about peer pressure today. Everyone was concerned about teens and peer pressure. Maybe with adults, we would call it people-pleasing. And what is peer pressure? Everyone else is doing it. What will they think of me if I don't? People are big. We call it peer pressure, but it's, it's really the fear of man. Uh, let's take another example. What is it when someone is overcommitted? I know none of you know anything about that with all your casual, leisurely schedules. None of us know anything about being overcommitted, do we? But what is overcommitted? We ought to say no. We're already doing too much, but we say yes 
because we don't want to let somebody down. We don't want people to think we can't. We don't want to think people were not capable of doing all of these things and juggling all of these balls. We, we, we ought to say no, but we don't. We call it being overcommitted, but it's, it's the fear of man. We call it needing something from someone. I need this from you. Think of, a, think of a married person with their spouse. I need you to respect and esteem me. And, and so a spouse should. Or I need you to be attracted to me. I need you to make me feel special. And, and we couch it in language of need. And, and those things are all good, right? The need sounds innocent, even justified, but deep down it's, it's the fear of man. I need you to do this and give me this. We call it self-esteem. It's a misnomer, really. We build our self-esteem on how we think other people esteem us. If other people esteem us highly, we'll esteem ourselves highly. That's how we calibrate it. We reverence their opinions. We call it self-esteem, but it's deep down the fear of man. We call it things like imposter syndrome. Are you familiar with that? Psychologists say something like 80% of people experience this. The sense that deep down, if people really knew me, they'd know I was a fraud. If they really knew me deep down, they wouldn't respect, admire, or like me if they knew who I really was. Huge majority of the population, we're afraid of being exposed, of people who know we re- knowing who we really are, of being shown to be a failure. We call it imposter syndrome. The Bible would call it the fear of man. Oh, how about if we always are second-guessing our decisions? Right? We, just, we don't want to make a mistake. We don't want to be shown to have been in error. It's the fear of man. Getting easily embarrassed. Right? We don't want to look silly. We don't want to look dumb. We're concerned about what people think. It's the fear of man. Lying. Especially what we sometimes call little white lies. We, we hide or distort the truth just enough to make us look a little better. It's the fear of man. Comparison. Compare ourselves to others or, or get jealous of people. We think it's justified. They don't deserve, I deserve, but really we're concerned about what people think. It's the fear of man. I mean, if we're honest, most dieting and workout regimens have at least some source in the fear of man. I say I'm doing it for my health, and, and I am at some level, but I also want you to think I look good. Fear of man lurks behind that. Maybe a great summary category is what we often call insecurity. The very term conjures up images of being unsafe. We're insecure. We're afraid. We're never comfortable with who we are, always looking, always afraid of looking inferior, of not measuring up. It has its roots in the fear of man. It's, uh, the fear of man is everywhere in our lives, but But the truth is, all of these things make us miserable. We live with the fear of man, but we hate it. It takes everything from us. It offers us basically nothing in return. And yet, for many of us, it's all over our lives, this fear of man. How does that happen? Why do we do that to ourselves? Proverbs 29, 25 tells us the fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. 
That's what a snare is. The fear of man lays a snare. It's a trap. It's something dangerous that you get stuck in and can't get out. And, and isn't that how most of these things feel for us? Something we're stuck in and can't get out. The end game for the fear of man is more fear of man. Just think. Think about all the celebrities that possess the looks, the fame, the power, the wealth, the admiration that we so often crave. Now, we all know how happy and well-adjusted those people are, don't we? No. The fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It's a game we can't win. So why do we play? Why do we play? Who's laying this trap, and why do we struggle with it? Well, to be sure, it's not from God. To be sure, it's not from God. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil all conspire together to lay this trap for us. Uh, They drop it like landmines everywhere in our lives. We're always in danger of stepping into this trap called the fear of man. There's three ways, three reasons, I think, that it catches us. First of all, reason number one, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. We fear people because they can expose and humiliate us and, and, and make it known and find out who or what we really are. Shame. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Remember Adam and Eve? Toward the end of Genesis 2, after they're created, they're brought together into this first marriage, wonderfully happy, both delighted, and it says they were both naked and not ashamed. Nothing to fear. You can completely know me, everything about me. I'm totally all right with that. And nothing to hide. And then chapter 3 of Genesis, they sin. They break God's law. And what do they immediately do? I'm naked. i got to cover myself. And they hide from each other, and they hide from God. And shame becomes a universal part of the human experience. Shame is just there. It's part of life. The story of Scripture quickly becomes one in which people frantically look to hide and protect themselves from the gaze of God and the gaze of other people. They become self-conscious and ashamed. Think of what is lost in the fall. Think of what is lost when that shame enters the world. Shame comes ultimately from sin. It's not baseless. I really am a sinner. I really have disobeyed God, broken His law. I really do deserve His punishment. We have reason to be ashamed. Sometimes shames come not from our own sin, but from ways we've been victimized or sinned against. And we can carry that shame, even though it's not our fault. In fact, it often feels a lot like the other shame, the shame that is our fault. And that can be an incredible burden that people carry. Sometimes our shame comes from things we we could never even help or do anything about. Something about how we look that we just can't change. Or or think about how many people are embarrassed by the sound of their own voice. They hear a recording of themselves, and what does everyone say? Oh, that doesn't sound like me. And everyone else says, it sounds exactly like you, right? Why are we ashamed of the sound of our voice? But people do that all the time. Sometimes our shame comes from things we wish we hadn't done. Choices we wish we hadn't made. There's a country song a number of years ago. 
singer looking back on life, and he, the chorus says, people say they wouldn't change a thing, even if they could. He says, but I would, because I'd do a lot of things different. Many of us look back and go, I'd do a lot of things different, and we're ashamed. And the shame saps our joy, damages our relationships. We fear that people will find us out. And that fear of man redirects our worship and our attention. People and what they know or might find out about us becomes big to us. God becomes small. We're trapped by the fear of man. Here's the second reason. We fear people because they can reject, ridicule, or despise us. And for many of us, this is where the fear of man is the most acute. Often we can remember these kind of things from way back in our lives, a time that was really embarrassing. We tend to not forget those things. Uh, Criticisms that we received. Some of us remember criticisms that go back to when we were small, early in our lives, and we've, we've hung on to those. Or people who've rejected us. We can be rejected, ridiculed, or despised. So we do whatever it takes to avoid that rejection and that ridicule. And we could talk about this for a long time. It's trapped by the fear of man. And the third reason, we fear people because they can't attack, oppress, or threaten us. For some of us, the fear of man may have roots in real mistreatment, real harm, real abuse that you've suffered at the hands of people. And the fear from that mistreatment can linger for a lifetime. We're trapped snared by the fear of man so our fear of man is rooted in shame which is justified we really are guilty our fear of man is rooted in being fear of being rejected or ridiculed which has happened before and will probably happen again our fear of man is rooted in being hurt or otherwise mistreated which could happen so the fear of man isn't irrational we have our reasons yet at the same time It is extremely destructive. It's destructive to us emotionally. It's destructive to us relationally. It's destructive for us spiritually. Fear of man is. Here's why. The issue with the fear of man isn't so much about terror, that we cower around people, although that can happen too. The issue with the fear of man is is more about need and control. Need and control. What we think we need will eventually start to control us. And what we controls us ultimately becomes what we worship. Let me give you an example. A drug addict who needs a fix. And he needs a fix. And it begins to control him. He'll do anything he can to have it he'll break the law and risk jail time he'll sell out his family's financial future to get it he'll throw away everything important to him every relationship to get the fix he thinks he needs his need controls him it's not a stretch to say that that control becomes a kind of worship All to heroin I surrender. All to oxy I freely give. The need becomes control, 
and the control becomes worship. The fear of man's like this too. Consider a person struggling deeply with insecurity. Now, I, I don't want to be insensitive to that because it's hard, but think about what's behind it. Right? The need there isn't chemical. It's emotional and, and spiritual. But that need begins to control her too. She, she needs a fix of a different kind to be admired, desired, esteemed. She gets addicted. So she might begin to starve herself to the detriment of her health to make a certain weight she hopes others will admire. She might spend money, money that would be much better spent elsewhere, on expensive clothes or, or cosmetic enhancements so people will find her more attractive and desirable. She might start she might start sleeping around against her own values because she loves to feel wanted, valuable, and important. Her need to be admired and desired begins to control her. And it's no stretch to say that that tr- control eventually becomes the thing she worships. All to compliments I surrender. All to being admired I freely give. What we need, or believe ourselves to need, starts to control us. And what controls us becomes the thing that we worship. Here's what's happening with the fear of man. In ways we probably haven't recognized and perhaps never intended, people have become big. God has become small. What God thinks matters less and less. What people think matters more and more. What people think of us or might say to us or might do to us becomes our greatest fear and our greatest concern, therefore our greatest need and becomes in a very real sense in ways we never would have intended becomes what we actually begin to worship. It's the thing we think will give us meaning, significance, and hope for the future. And this is going on for many of us all over the place, under the radar in our lives. It's there in ways we haven't thought about or come to grips with. And it's a powerful force. What then is the antidote to the fear of man? It's destructive to us emotionally, relationally, spiritually. What's the antidote? Well, we need, we need a bigger fear. We need a bigger fear. A number of years ago, in fact, it was on our first anniversary, um, Kelly and I went to Toronto, and uh, we went to the, the Natural History Museum there, and they had a complete skeleton. I'm sure it wasn't fully complete. I'm sure they fabricated parts of it. But anyway, it was a full skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus Rex you ever seen one of these? It's, it's kind of was crouched down, so it was, his back was kind of, spine was kind of parallel to the floor, and so not real tall. The thing is enormously long, and the skull is you know, six feet. It's got to be, the skull's bigger than me. Just massive teeth, and you look at that thing, it's staring you in the eye, and you think, I just can't imagine. <laughs> can't imagine what it would be like to have a T-Rex after you absolutely terrifying i've actually had dreams like that four times i think of a t-rex terrifying me and i tell you it's absolutely terrifying you don't want to be chased by a t-rex i'll tell you from experience but suppose suppose you have a fear a fear of bugs 
and you see a bug and you start to back up and you're like, why am I afraid of this bug? How am I going to get over this? I'll tell you one way you get over it. Get chased by a T-Rex. You forget all about the bug, right? That's not that big a deal. That I need to, that I need to reckon with. That I need to reckon with. You need, you need a bigger fear. The antidote to the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. God must become big and people small. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, now maybe you'd say, well, wait a minute, Ben. It doesn't say the fear of the Lord, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. But the parallelism in this verse is so instructive. We might want to say the contrast here is between fearing and trusting. But in this context, they're essentially the same thing. There's little difference between fearing God and putting our trust in him. There's little difference between fearing people and putting our trust in them. The real issue in this verse is the target of that fear and trust. Is it man or is it God? That's the real contrast between man and the Lord. Who are you focused on? Whose attention is important to you? Who do you think holds the key to your happiness? Who are you trying to please or impress? Whose favor are you putting your hope in? Is God big or are people big? If it's other people, you're going to find yourself trapped. If it's God, you'll be safe and free. Turn over just a few chapters or a few pages to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah 17. See this same principle illustrated here in Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like, he's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and doesn't fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it doesn't cease to bear fruit. You see the contrast here. There are people that put their trust in man, who fear man. They're looking for people to meet all of their needs and give them the significance, meaning, and validation that they crave. And, and, and God says, that's kind of like, like buying a shrub and planting it in the desert. No hope. He says, on the other side, there's people who look to God for meaning, validation, significance, and life. He goes, and they're like a bush planted... Well, right next to a stream of water. And even if, it gets, even if it's dry and there's a drought, they're fine. Because they're trusting in God. They look to and fear Him. We saw a great example of this earlier uh, in our service when we read Daniel chapter 3. Think of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are miles and miles from their homeland. They serve in the court of a foreign king. 
for all practical purposes, they are never going to go home again. They're away from their home, away from the temple that's been destroyed, away from, it would seem, their God. And so this image is raised. Nebuchadnezzar says, I will throw you in the furnace if you don't bow down and worship. And what do they say? Fine. Fine. Throw us in. Our God can save us. And if he doesn't, you just need to understand we're not going to do what you say. Listen, there, there is a whole horde of people who fear Nebuchadnezzar and will bow right away. Probably there are a lot of other Jewish people like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who are doing the same thing. What's the big deal? They just aren't afraid. I can kill you, Nebuchadnezzar says. Maybe, they say. Maybe. But our God, our God will take care of us. Of course, it's not just them in the book of Daniel. Think of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. He says to them, I'm not eating the king's meat. No, you have to eat the king's meat. I don't have to eat the king's meat. I'm not going to do it. Or Daniel, better known in Daniel chapter 6. If anybody bows down and prays to anybody but the king, what does Daniel do? Same thing he always does. Just not afraid. You'll get thrown in the lion's den. I'm not afraid of you. Remarkable. God is big. And so the, the esteem, the opinions, the actions even, even dangerous actions of people just don't seem that important because they've entrusted themselves to God. Daniel prospers in this foreign land because God is big and to him Nebuchadnezzar is small. The only way to overcome the fear of man is to replace it with a bigger fear, the fear of the Lord. Listen, because the fear of man is ultimately about worship, you can be absolutely confident that God is going to put his finger on this in your life. He's not going to let it go. He's not going to pretend it doesn't matter. He's not going to leave it alone. Because, because he's not going to share his worship. And because he loves his people too much to leave them trapped in that futile fear of man game. He's going to put his finger on it. And it's probably going to be painful. And it's going to press us into difficult choices, difficult decisions, difficult circumstances, where we have to find out that only God can meet our needs provide us the meaning and significance that we crave and affirm us as we need. He's going to do whatever it takes to touch this in our lives. He wants to make himself big in our hearts and lives so that we'll turn to him for hope and meaning and significance where we actually can find it instead of vainly seeking to get it from other people. We can be sure that God is working on this and will be working on this in our lives. So what do we do? What are we supposed to do about the fear of man? We know God's going to work on it. What can we do? Well, if you were to go to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble and pick up a book on, say, self-esteem or consult the psychological literature, I suppose the most common suggestion would be something like this. You just need to tell yourself, I'm awesome. I don't care what people think about me. I'm awesome. I don't care what people think about me. That doesn't really work, though. It doesn't work. Because what we're essentially doing there is saying, I'll be the judge of me, not you. I'll be the judge of me, not you. The problem is, if I judge myself honestly, 
I don't feel any better. I actually feel worse. I'm not that awesome. And I do care what people think about me. If I take an honest look in the moral mirror, I see things like selfishness and anger and pride in a, in a host of other ugly sins that make me feel terrible about myself. If I'm honest about myself, I could be my own judge, but it doesn't make me feel any better. And if I decide just to give myself a free pass on all of those things, I feel terrible about being a dishonest person who ignores the truth and gives himself a free pass. What I need and crave is for someone to look at me honestly, to see me for who I really am, someone with the power to render a true and authoritative verdict about me. What I need is someone who can look at me and to somehow, despite all of my failures, declare me accepted, valued, and loved forever. No games, just the truth. I need someone who can do that for me so I don't have to fear people, but I can have that confidence, that strength, that affirmation. Where could I get that kind of verdict? Look at Matthew chapter 10. We'll finish there this morning. Look at Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus' disciples are being sent out to minister. They're going to face opposition. Fear of man is going to be an issue. Look what he says in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. <laughs> Wait a minute. Don't fear those who can kill the body. That sounds crazy. It's exactly the kind of people we ought to be afraid of. Jesus says, don't. Don't worry about them. He says, instead, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says, this is you need to be concerned about, God. He says, you're concerned about, and you're going to be concerned about people who can hurt you physically. He said, but you ought to be much more concerned about God who can send both soul and body to hell. And, and here's what I would expect would follow this. Jesus telling them, be afraid, right? I would expect him to say something like this. You know, if these persecutors that you're going to face, if they're like little bugs, well, God the Father's like a T-Rex. You should be terrified. Well, in a sense, that would be true. But that's not where Jesus goes at all. Look where he goes. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says, don't fear man. Fear the one that can throw soul and body in hell and we think, oh, he's going to lay it on him. And instead of moving to the Father's immense terror, he moves to his immense tenderness. He says, think about sparrows. Right? You go to the market. You go to buy a sparrow. The guy says, it'll be a dollar. And you're like, no, 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 no. He says, okay, 50 cents. You're like, no, 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 no. He says, a quarter. No. D nick, dime. No. Nickel. Penny. You're like, mm, give me two for a penny. Right? He's saying they're essentially worthless to us. Not to the Father. 
his two sparrows are flying along. Father's holding them up. If one falls, it's only because the Father lets him. He goes on. He says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. You don't know the number of hairs on your head. You know why? Besides the fact it's very difficult for most of you. Because it doesn't matter. I don't need to know the number of hairs on my head. I don't need to know that much detail about myself. Jesus says, God does. God does. If God knows the number of hairs on your head, God knows everything going on with you. Everything. The thing you're worried about, the area where the fear of man confronts and maybe even paralyzes you, God knows everything about that. We would expect when he says, fear him who can throw both soul and body in hell, that he's going to move on to the terror of the Father, but instead he goes to the tenderness of the Father. You are worth more than many sparrows. Where do we get this verdict that we need? Well, he goes on. Verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. Jesus says, look, if you acknowledge me, you own me, you trust me, you put your hope and fear in me, he says, I will stand before the Father and say about you, this one's mine. This one is mine. He is forgiven, accepted, redeemed. I want him with me forever. Because he's perfect and good and no, no. No, because he's owned Jesus. He's put his trust and heart and fear in Christ. Of course, the flip side is also true. Verse 33. Whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Those who turn from Christ, Jesus will say to the Father, he's, he's on his own. You'll have to take him on his merits. And that never works. There's no hope there. In the fear of man, people become big and God becomes small. We need to replace the fear of man with a fear of God, a great trust in Him. Only He can give us the verdict we crave. Only He can give us what we really need. We need someone who can look squarely at who we really are, the sinners that we really are, the guilt that we really have. We can't pretend. We can't sweep it under the rug. We can't just tell ourselves we're awesome and clap ourselves on the back. We need someone to stare it in the face for what it really is and somehow make us right. Somehow accept us, forgive us, and save us. And that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. Right? He goes to the cross. He bears the shame. Our shame. He bears the guilt. Our guilt. He takes the punishment, our punishment. He takes the rejection, our rejection, on himself so that he might pour out mercy and grace on scared, needy sinners like me and you. God must become big. People must become small. And the place we go for that again and again is the cross on the cross the father declares his infinite love for his people he displays his mercy our sins are many but his mercy is more 
on the cross, we see God's love for us. We see his forgiveness and his acceptance. On the cross, God becomes big. And the opinions and actions of people become small. So what is the step? We know God is going to work on this in our life. He's going to touch it and put his finger on it and work on the fear of man. What do we do? We remind ourselves again and again every day of the gospel. I am a sinner, but God has loved me. I am guilty, but Christ took my guilt. I do deserve to be punished, but I've been forgiven. I deserve hell, but I've been graced with heaven. So we go to the gospel again and again and again so that God and his love and mercy and grace might become big and that people might become small. Father, I pray for myself, for every person here. Lord, the fear of man is a big deal for us in ways we probably haven't recognized or come to, come to grips with. Father, the fear of man dishonors you. It treats people as more consequential than you. It treats their esteem and their opinion as more consequential than yours. And for this, Father, we, we ask forgiveness. And Father, I ask and pray for great grace. We need your help. The, the insecurities, the fears, the struggles that we have this, with this, they run deep in our hearts, deep in our minds, deep in our lives. We don't suppose that they'll all fall off overnight. But I pray that we would find real freedom, real forgiveness, real liberty in the gospel, in what Christ has done for us, that we would take our identity, we would take the verdict about us from Calvary rather than from our own condemnation and that of others. Lord, we need your help. We, I pray that you would, you would give it to us. Father, I pray that the grace that we, we crave from you that, that we might as a church also graciously extend to each other. I, I pray that Springview Community Church would be a place where fear of man seems unnecessary because we're all so focused and all so resting in what you've done for us. I pray that you would be big here. That you would humble us before you that we might make much of Christ in the cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.